Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I want to look at fatherhood this morning, and and it's very important that we look at fatherhood because there is a war on fatherhood. You know that? There is a war on fatherhood. Uh, the, the whole, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, there, is, there is a lot of pain behind the Black Lives Matter movement, matters movement, and rightly so. There's, there's a lot of frustration and pain, but there's also some misguided uh, principles that people are vying for. And if you look at the, the, the principles on their platform, on their website, it really is the eradication of fatherhood. It's the, let's get fathers out of the way because they're, they're, they're part of the problem. And so, uh, man, we want to we wanna go after the real issues in society. We want to be the answer. Uh, my, my heart breaks for the black community, for the black church, for the black community in America, and we want to be part of the answer. And I'm convinced part of the answer is fatherhood. That's true of white America. That's true of black America. That's tr- true of the Latinos and the Asians. But it's hit especially hard in black America. Uh, if you look at statistics, uh, before the Great Society, uh, the single parent home in the African American household was approximately I believe it was 28%. It's now 78%. It's absolutely decimated the black home. And it is at the root of much as what is ailing them. And it needs to break our hearts. And we need to pray that God will get to the real issues there and rescue our brothers and sisters in the black community. And there is a war on fatherhood. Not just in the black community, but it is showing up in the black community. There is a war on fatherhood because the enemy knows fatherhood is the pattern of heaven. If you look, the, the, the template of heaven, the template of heaven is a family. A father has a son. A father sent his son so he could have many sons. Fatherhood is at the foundation of the kingdom of heaven. It's at the foundation of the template of heaven. You cannot understand God without understanding that he is at his core a father. There's many metaphors, many many facets of God's nature that we can look at. We can look at different attributes, the holiness of God, the love of God, all these different facets. But the fact is his primary identity, the primary way in which he reveals himself to humanity is as a father. And you will not understand creation unless you understand that God the Father is first and foremost a father. And Jesus came as the only begotten son to reveal the father. Now that word only begotten doesn't mean that he's the only one God has. The Greek word is monogenes. It means the only unique. He's unique in in all, all of God's family. He has one unique son. He's the only begotten of the Father. He's the only one. He he was uncreated. That the Godhead, this mystery of this creator God that made everything, manifests himself in the form of a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit. And the world does not make sense. Creation does not make sense. You're going to miss, your theology will not make sense unless you realize that God is a father. 
And it's the, it's, the under, it's the backdrop to all of redemptive history that God longs for many children. There was a father who had a son who wanted many sons. And so he created Adam and Eve in the garden so that he could create many sons. Adam and Eve got off track. So what did God do? The son became a human being and took on the, the burden to redeem us back, to reveal the Father and to redeem us back to the Father so God could have many sons. Romans 8, Hebrews 2 says he's bringing many sons to glory. The secret, the, the explanation behind all that is, is God is a father. See, where you start will determine where you land. Origins determine destinies. If you start with God as a savior, then you start with sin. And once man is saved, well, then what else do we do? We're fiddling our thumbs until we get to heaven. But it's, it's not just God as creator. It's God as a father at back in eternity past. I would propose to you, I don't have time to unpack this this morning, but I would propose to you that much of the problem in the American church is we don't start back far enough. That our theology starts with the fall, and therefore the primary gifting that uh, becomes necessary is that pastoral evangelist so that people can get saved, and the ultimate goal is that they're born again. But Jesus didn't tell us to go into all the world and make converts. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, or those who are disciplined and grow up into the fullness of who God is. It's not that we begin with God as a creator in the garden. And so therefore, we steward that thing through the pastoral gift. The ultimate is God in eternity past that he, as a father, he had a dream. I have a son. And the father and the son discussed it. And they said, we want a bigger family. God wanted to expand the boundaries of his family. And you are the answer to that dream. I don't know if you felt it this morning, but several times I just, I thought, I don't want to touch this. It's beautiful. But, but I just kept feeling like, man, the, the fatherhood of God is here this morning. The fathering, the fathering nature of God is here this morning. And he wants us to enter into that. He is a father. The ultimate attribute or the ultimate expression of who God is, is as a father. So the template of the kingdom is a father and a son. And so if the kingdom is going to be manifest, one of the primary ways in which it is manifest is healthy homes because we are an expression of him. Uh, one of my favorite books is a book. Now you're going to say, man, that's your favorite book. It's called Devil Take the Youngest by Winky Pratney. It is a tremendously insightful book. Uh, the reason it's one of my favorite books is because it's so insightful, but it is a very tragic book. The first half is, deals with kind of the uh, philosophical, theological history of the war on children throughout history. And then the second half is a lot of statistics showing how that bears out. But he, uh, in that book, Winky Prattney talks about how there's a war on the home to destroy childhood. And the reason... They're out to, the, the enemy's out to destroy childhood is because child, that childlikeness is the template for us to approach God. I would add to Winky's book a second volume, The War on Fatherhood. 
Because God wants to reveal himself as father and us as his children. And so the enemy is out to erase these two metaphors that give us such insight into the relationship we're supposed to have. And so we need to understand that, that uh, the template of the kingdom is a father and a son. The son that lives in relationship with him. Hears his voice. Just does what he hears the father saying and doing. It's the expression of that, that oneness between the father and the son. So fatherhood is the target of hell's warfare. The enemy was out to undermine our relationship with God as father. And if you begin to understand that, the temptation in the garden makes more sense. The enemy was out to undermine that trusting relationship between the father and his children in the garden. Did God really say? Can you really trust him? And he dislodged Adam and Eve's trust in God. He told them that God can't be trusted because God's trying to keep the good stuff from, for himself. And so Adam and Eve, from that place of unbelief, took matters into their own hands. And we're trying to fix the, the mess they made ever since. But there's, an, there's a warfare on fatherhood. And it's not just a, a warfare against the fatherhood of God to distort that picture. I've, man, I've counseled with literally thousands of people over the years. I, uh, for many, many years, I was the director of counseling out at Teen Challenge. We had hundreds of guys come through there, dozens and dozens of gals. I didn't work with the gals as much. But a common theme uh, at the root of their issues was this father hunger, this broken relationship with their father, often a non-existent father or an abusive father, a, a situation where they would have been better off without a father than the one they did have. The enemy can sabotage that relationship, that, that, that early relationship that becomes literally a template for the rest of life. He can, he can sidetrack people so, so severely. And so God is out to heal our father issues. Now we, we joke about, oh, he's got father issues, she's got father issues, but it's no laughing matter. Pastor John and I were talking this morning and uh, he, said, he made an observation. He said, did you notice that there's been very little promotion of Father's Day in our culture this year? Now, Mother's Day, there's a lot of promotion. Unless you go to a hardware store, you don't see a promotion of Father's Day. And I hadn't thought about it until he said that. But there is. There's a war on fathers. And at one level, one of the reasons for that is fathers get blamed for a lot and rightly so. God wants to restore our ability to father well. But before we can be a good father, we've got to be fathered. And we've got to be reconciled to the father. And we've got to deal with our father issues. I was telling John, I remember years ago reading that Hallmark, the Hallmark Corporation, uh, there was a prison next to one of their factories. And they thought, you know what we're going to do for Mother's Day? We're going to deliver a bunch of Mother's Day cards for free. So that these guys, they don't, you know, they don't have income. They're in prison. And so we're going to give them Mother's Day cards and they can send them to their mom. And it was a hit. I mean, they ran out of Mother's Day cards. And so they thought, okay, we're going to do the same on Father's Day. And they did the same thing. And they were barely touched. Said so just a few guys asked for a Father's Day card. I'm telling you, that is not a coincidence. That's not, oh, that was a weird anomaly. No, that, that is the reason many of them ended up where they were, because there was a breach in that father-child relationship. A father is there to define the identity of his children, to begin to build into their lives that stability, that, that self-acceptance into their life. 
He's to guard the daughters by making her feel valued so she doesn't feel the need to look for that outside the home too early. It's to establish that, that confidence in a son that knows that he's accepted by his father, that there's that, that sparking of a son off his father, and so he begins to know he's a man. Years ago, I watched a PBS special about rites of passages in different cultures. And it's fascinating that all down through human history, cultures had rites of passages where the men were involved. The Jews had bar mitzvahs. The Roman Grecian culture had what was called adoption. Adoption wasn't taking someone outside the family, non-biological child and putting your name on it. It was literally taking your biological child and taking them through a rite of passage where they're now an adult and they can function as a man in the culture. That was the the, uh, ceremony of adoption when Paul talks about the spirit of adoption and that we're adopted by the father. It's not talking about that, that we're just, we're still genetically related to our biological father, but God just slaps his name on us and gives us an inheritance. He says, we are partakers of the divine nature. He gave us the power to become sons of God. We are born again. And adoption is that act, that, that transition into maturity. That's why it says, they who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The, root, the same word is used there. The spirit of adoption is also translated the spirit of sonship. What he's talking about is sonship was the result of a ceremony of adoption where you were recognized as a fellow male adult in the culture. And there was a rite of passage. There was a definitive time where you moved from childhood into adulthood. And so spiritually speaking, the sons of God are not necessarily those who are born again. You got to be born again to be a son. But you got to have more than a born again experience. You got to have more than a conversion. You have been discipled. You've been matured. You've come under the discipline of the spirit until you have become one who is led by the spirit of God and not by your own inclinations you become mature. And that's what sonship is. And so we need to grow up into him. And that that is God's goal. He is adamantly, God is hungry to raise up sons and daughters. And fathers are there to lay that foundation. And if you don't have it, the good news is we have been given the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, to raise us up, to cause us to cry, Abba, Father. God wants to formulate that foundation in us because only when you have that can you be stable and begin to launch out and do other things. God in his brilliance, the way he created things, by the principle of design tells us that God created us in this way, that we're born to a father and mother and we're to be nurtured and a foundation is to be laid in our life and then we're to be launched into adulthood from there to take on the world. It's an interesting thing. If you read about uh, premature puberty among children, one of the primary reasons for premature onset of puberty, but that's a hard phrase to say, premature onset of puberty uh, is the absentee father. And here's the tragedy. The very girls who need the protection the most enter into puberty early and attract attention the most. 
The very ones who have the least protection attract the most attention. And there's this thing of premature onset. And I remember seeing that when I was living on the streets because even though I was raised in a good home, I rejected that. And I, I, I lived on the streets and I rubbed shoulders with a lot of different families that uh, we're talking second generation drug addiction, third generation alcoholism, a lot of immorality. I, uh, there were families that I was, I, I was friends with and mom and dad would uh, give up their bedroom so their kids could go to bed with their girlfriend uh, during the evening and they'd say, hey, hurry up in there, you know, we're home, we're ready to go to bed. I mean, just tremendous dysfunction. And I began to notice that there was, there was this uh, physical onset of a maturity that they hadn't caught up yet emotionally and mentally. The danger is, is that kids begin to have the equipment and the attraction before they have the capacity mentally and emotionally to handle that type of temptation. And it creates a myriad of problems. And secular sociologists, secular physicians point to one of the primary reasons is the absentee father. We need fathers. I was reading a, an article. I, matter of fact, I... I brought it up so I could read this to you. This is fascinating. I heard Chris Ballatin tell this story recently. And so I did some research and looked it up. And uh, listen to it. It's called The Delinquents. South Africa's wildlife parks are a great success story. They've brought many animals back from the brink of extinction and millions of tourist dollars from around the world. But as Bob Simon of CBS first reported in 1999, there's a problem lurking in the South African bush. Game rangers discovered that a new group of juvenile delinquents has been attacking and killing the white rhinoceros, the rhino they've spent years protecting. The white rhinoceros was on the brink of destruction, so they created these wildlife reserves brought them on there and they begin to multiply and they save them from, the, from extinction only to almost lose them again by trying to save another set of species from distinction. In South Africa's Plainsburg Park, rhinos were thriving until an unknown killer began stopping, stalking them. 39 rhinos, 10% of the population in the park, were killed. The killings were, were clearly not the work of poachers. The rhino's horns had not been touched. The park rangers began conducting an investigation. Their first finding led them to believe that if they were to round up the usual suspects, they would need a pretty large holding pen. That's because the prime suspects were not humans, but elephants. It turned out that young male elephants were behind the murders of the Palenisburg rhinos. Why would they do it? Well, like juvenile delinquents, they had grown up without role models. One of the field ecologists, a Dr. Dyke, said, I think everyone needs a role model, and these elephants that left the herd had no role model and no idea of what was appropriate elephant behavior. So what happened is, is there was another reserve and they had too many elephants. They'd save this particular elephant from extinction. They were multiplying so much and this other reserve didn't have elephants. So they said, we'll just take some of the elephants over here and move them over there. But they realized we can't move the big ones because they were too big. Now this was about 30 years ago now, if I remember right. And so he, they moved the, the, they killed the adult elephants and moved the young male baby elephants and females. But these young elephants grew up without a role model. And so as they reached 
adolescence, there was too much testosterone. They, they tested them and said the ones with a lot of testosterone began to go up and just puncture the rhinos with their tusks and kill them. See, so out of these bloated rhino carcasses all over. And they said they did an investigation and they actually began to keep a list of the delinquent elephants. They named them. And they kept a record. He's, he was guilty of this assault and this assault. And they, found, they were following this one. And even when he was small, he began to be aggressive. And they said at first it almost seemed funny. He would run up on the rhinos and he would push them over and sit on them and kick them. And then he'd run off. And sometimes the, the, uh, the park rangers would shoot. They'd get his attention so they could get the rhinos away. And the rhinos would run. And as soon as the young elephant realized the rhinos got away, he'd turn in a rage and stomp off angry angry. And they had to kill some of them because as they got older and bigger, they began to kill these other animals. And so they were wringing their hands. They couldn't figure out why these older elephant, these younger elephants were so aggressive. And that's when they began to look and they realized, you know what? We didn't move any older male elephants with them. So by this time, they, they got some huge trucks and they began to ship in some big bull elephants, some old ones. And as soon as they did, these bigger, older elephants began to challenge the younger ones and put them under subjection and teach them what rhino protocol should be in a healthy family. And all of a sudden, the killing stopped. Isn't that fascinating? And the fact is, we see this in our culture. The influence of a father is so important. And so we need that, that the dads that are there for their sons to temper them during those aggressive years, help them to channel their energies. In the pockets of our culture where fatherlessness really shows up, especially in the inner city, and violence is very high. It's not because those, whether it's black culture, Latino culture, white culture, there are parts of our country. I used to work in the inner city in St. Louis. And uh, the, the area I primarily worked in was the, the white area. But it was a violent, dangerous area because it was a fatherless area. I used to go pick up kids. And uh, I remember this one family, these, just these little kids. They're in their, man, they're probably in their late 30s now. And I'd go in and mom, she was a prostitute. She'd, she'd be in bed with some guy and I'd just walk in, knock on the door. Come on in, Dave. She'd be in the front room in bed. Good morning. Good morning, Dave. I'm going to go get the kids ready. I'd get them ready for church and I'll have them, have them home later. And uh, just tragic, these kids, what they were being raised in. I remember that particular family, their dad was a demon-possessed drunk. I'd run into him on the streets, growling and just wandering around a drunk man. Those kids barely had a chance. And what they needed is, I remember thinking, God, we need a church in the city. Somebody that can be fathers and mothers to these kids and, and produce a good example. And here's, here's the danger. Many of our Political policies mean well, but they actually undermine the strength of the home by incentivizing the single parent home. Back in the 60s, we, we literally, under Johnson, and I believe his motives, I, 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 I want to believe they were right. I have no idea. But he, he saw that they needed help in the inner city, and they went door to door, and they knocked on doors and said, listen, we will support you as long as there's not a man in the home. You'll get a government check every week. 
And since that time was dubbed the Great Society, the single parent home in America has exponentially risen, especially in those inner city cultures where uh, it's just the, the, the violence is risen and all of those things. And we need to pray for real answers. I've been, I've been thinking about this in Proverbs where the Lord says, it says, wisdom cries in the streets, come to me, you who are simple. Think about that. He's saying, wisdom is crying out, I want to instruct you, I want to teach you. And he, he addresses the, the, the audience that needs to hear wisdom as the simple. And it struck me this last week, I thought, I'd never thought of that before. We have overly simplistic solutions to problems. And we end up worsening the problem. And I, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I think a lot of people mean well, but what we need is get back to the book and realize that God's answer is a family. And we need to pray. We need to pray for those aspects of our culture right now that are being ravaged by the single parent home. That it's being incentivized by political policy. And it just becomes a vicious cycle. Kathy and I, we, we were talking about, I have a dear friend that, uh, man, I, I've known him for many, many years. He called me and he's out of prison again and, and uh, just back and forth, in and out of rehab. And I went through Teen Challenge with him 37 years ago. We went to two Bible schools together. The man was a tremendously anointed evangelist. He would lead people to the Lord everywhere we went. We'd pull up to get gas and he'd be leading everybody to the Lord at the gas station. His mother was a prostitute from another country. He was adopted by an American family. He and his sister and his sister was sexually abused by this family and they beat him. He was an alcoholic at 16 years old and had a radical encounter with Jesus and got saved and ended up at Teen Challenge. But I look at his life and the, how he struggled for so many years. I just reconnected with him recently. I about fell over. I came to the office about two months ago and Allie handed me a note. She said, hey, you got a call from, and I looked at the number and I about fell over. I was sure he was dead because the last time I heard from him was about three months after I became the senior pastor of this church. And he had had repeated overdoses and he'd be up and down, up and down. And I just look at him and man, he was a really handsome dude and hard worker and a tremendous anointing on his life, but he never had the foundation that he needed. As we were talking about him the other day, Kathy knew him and I had him on speakerphone. He was just telling us what he's going on through and I was saying, we're praying for you. And uh, we hung up the phone and Kathy said, man, it's like he never had a chance. We need to pray. In the New Testament, one of the primary figures, an apostolic leader of the New Testament church, a second generation son in the kingdom, was an apostle named Timothy. And Paul said, you are my son. I remember you with tears. He took him under his wing. He started a kingdom big brother program 
and said, I'm going to make you a son in the faith and I'm going to invest in you and I believe in you. And he corrected him, he rebuked him and he encouraged him and he gave him responsibility and he raised him up in the church. And at the end of his ministry, he passed him the baton and said, here, now it's time for you to run. Timothy had a dad, but he wasn't a Christian. He had a mama, he had a grandma that were both believers. He said, I wrote, he said the, the, the faith that was in your mother and your grandmother has been passed to you. Paul didn't lead him to the Lord. Paul met him as a, young, say, a saved young man. But he didn't have a dad that would validate his faith. He was fatherless in the kingdom. And Paul stepped in and put his arm around him and gave him that covering and began to speak into him. And he became the apostle Timothy. And we need to pray for that to spread. The kingdom comes through families. The template of the kingdom is a father who had a son. And if we want to see the kingdom of God advance, there has to be that element of fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, people who are investing in the next generation. That's why I'm saying we want to see you guys at prayer. I want to see you guys dig in. You guys are going to be the ones that carry it. When I'm old and you got to help me and, you know, and set me down. When I'm 100, I'm going to live to 100, then I'm going to reevaluate. And uh, you, you guys will help me in and you guys will be carrying the ball. We want to invest in you. Here's the thing. Jesus came to reveal the Father. I got to speak at... Uh, a funeral this week, and uh, it was Frank Camito, Gene Schlickmeyer's husband, passed and uh, went to, spoke at his funeral. It was at a Catholic church because Frank was Catholic, and I told the church I said he was a double dipper. Frank would go go here, and then he would sneak over to our place, and uh, so it was it was fun to be there, just in that different environment, and and uh, just sharing about. So the text that I spoke just real short out of was John chapter 14, 1 through 6. And Jesus said this. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, wouldn't I have told you? Why would I tell you that I'm going to go and prepare a place and not make it happen? I'm, I'm preparing. And if I do prepare, I'm coming back to bring you to that place. And then one of the disciples Doubting Thomas speaks up and said, but Jesus, we don't even know. Because he said, and you know the way. And he said, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going. How, we, how do we know the way to get there if we don't even know the destination? And he said, listen, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He said, I came to reveal the Father. And again, they asked, Lord, reveal to us the Father. He said, listen, guys. He said, how long have you been with me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Redemptive history doesn't make sense. You will not understand your Bible until you understand that at the root of this thing, at the foundation of this thing, is a father who wants many sons. And when that thing got off track, the, the, the only begotten son came to get this thing back on track. He came to reveal the father. And then Jesus says at the end of his ministry, he said, it's better that I leave. Because I'm going to send another like unto myself. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. It's an interesting phrase. He's implying that you started there, but I won't leave you there. 
And it's a pretty blanket statement. I won't leave you as an orphan. What's an orphan? An orphan is someone without a parent. It's someone without a father. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another like unto myself. It was the spirit of adoption. Even the ministry of the Spirit of God. We see the Father wanted many sons. The Son came to expand the, the kingdom, expand the royal family by revealing the Father and reconciling us to the Father. But even the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, even Him, His, his primary perspective or His primary ministry is to give unto us the Spirit of adoption. To cause us to cry, Abba, Father. To settle that father hunger, those issues. Many of us, the things we struggle with as adults really go back to that broken relationship as a child. Sometimes we're not even aware of it. I know when I got saved, God began to deal with me about some things through some spirit-filled counselors that could diagnose problems I didn't even know I had. There were several men of God that worked for Teen Challenge and I would sit down with them and they'd say, the Lord just spoke to me and they'd, they, they said some things and it meant it revealed some issues between my dad and I. And God came and empowered. I had some encounters with the Lord where he just flooded over me and began to heal those issues with my dad. King David one of, the, one of God's favorites, one of the giants of the faith. He was the one who wrote these words. He is a father to the fatherless. I tell guys all the time, listen, if you don't have a dad, you have something that I don't have. And it makes me jealous. You have a special claim on God. You have a you have an access to God. He becomes a father in a special way. He takes up, he, he takes up the, the, uh, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he takes up their, their cause of the orphan and the widow. And there's a lot of people that struggle with that orphan type of thinking because there's some issues, there's some areas of their life where they're not reconciled to their father. And God wants to come in and he wants to touch that and he wants to heal that. He is the father to the fatherless. And one of the primary ways in which he does that is the spirit. It's a beautiful thing. You know the baptism in the Holy Spirit? You know one of the primary phrases for that great gift? It's the father's blessing or the promise of the father. It's the father's blessing. The baptism in the Holy Spirit. We as Pentecostals like to make a lot about tongues and boldness for witnessing. But at its foundation, that's not the primary objective. The primary objective is to settle that issue that you are accepted in the beloved. He begins to validate your identity so that you know who you are. And out of that, you can begin to flow in your gifts. I tell you what, people that can flow in gifts that don't know who they are can be very dangerous. And so we need to deal with those issues and have the Father minister to our heart. And the Spirit of God is the primary agent of that type of ministry. He comes, Romans 8 says, as the Spirit of sonship or adoption to cause us to cry, Abba, Father. You see this even in Jesus' life. 
30 years, Jesus is just being a good boy. He's being a good man. He's working in his dad's shop. Dad passes away. He's, he's out there working in the family business. And the time comes for him to be presented to the human race as the Lamb of God. And he comes walking down the shoreline one day. There's a big crowd listening to his cousin. His cousin's a preacher, John the Baptist, Southern Baptist. And so uh, John points him out and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He introduces him as the, as the Messiah. And Jesus presents himself to John and said, hey, I need to get baptized too. And John said, no, man, I've seen who you are in the spirit. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I'm not even, un I'm not even worthy to tie your shoes, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, listen, this is necessary to fulfill all of righteousness. So John leads him into the waters of the Jordan River. And Jesus goes down in the water. And as he comes up, this phenomena, these signs and wonders begin to happen. And there were three components. The heavens opened. The dove descended. And the most important, the father spoke. And what did he say? You are my son and whom I am well pleased. That is the purpose of the, what's called the Father's blessing, what we Pentecostals often call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it is a baptism in the Holy Spirit. But that spirit in which we are submerged is the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship. And the purpose is to cause us to cry, Abba, Father, it, it's, it's doing a deep heart work so that we relate with him as father. Could be translated in the English as daddy God, daddy father. It's a, an affectionate term. And the spirit of God wants to do that work in us. That is the primary objective of the spirit's ministry. That's why in Ephesians chapter three, it says, when the spirit comes on us, the love of God is shed abroad in our heart. All of those converge. Romans chapter five said the sa says the same thing, that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the spirit. It's, it's the love of God as in God's communication that he loves us. And that love is to seep to the roots of our identity and begin to shape how we see ourselves. We are sons and daughters of God. We're accepted in the beloved. And then we too, like Jesus, go out and represent, represent the Father. And we do it right. And that saves us from the very temptation that Jesus passed. When Jesus was out in the wilderness, the enemy came to him and said, if you're really a son, prove it by producing some signs and wonders. Let ministry be your personal validation mechanism. Let ministry validate your identity. Do Christian things so that you can get external validation because you don't have it on the inside. And Jesus said, I'm not going there. I know who I am. I don't need to produce anything. I know that I'm accepted in the Father. The Spirit of God is the one that wants to lay that foundation in our hearts. I firmly believe that there is a major outpouring, a major Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit on the horizon. Amen. I'm not talking at Heartland although we're getting in on it. We are not being left out. I'm talking globally. 
Before that happens, we need to be ahead of the game and allow the Lord to deal with those issues in our life. How many of you saw Sandra Rohr's post on Facebook, her little video? Raise your hand high. It's a beautiful story. If you haven't, look it up. Sandra, when she was 12 years old, her mom and dad sat her down and shared with her that her dad was not really her biological father. And it rocked her world. Now, he's still a father to her. She's still, you know, he's functioning as that, but it rocked her little world and started to mess with her head as a little girl. So much so that she only spoke with her mother about it a few times. She always wondered who her real dad was. And when she was 19 years old, it was the third time she talked to her mom. And her mom was an artist. And she said, Mom, would you draw a picture of what my biological father looked like? I'm never going to get to meet him. I want to see what he looks like. Because she wouldn't tell the name. And, and just there was, I, I don't know why. And her mom said, yeah, I'll draw you a picture of what he looked like. And the next day, she was brutally murdered. And it was devastating to Sandra because she thought, I'll never know what my dad looked looked like. Now that that final connection with my dad is gone forever. And like David, who had this rift with him and his father, David found God as a father to the fatherless. And God did a a beautiful work in Sandra, but there were always, there was this father hunger, this desire, these questions. And one day she was worshiping here in church and the Lord spoke to her and said, I'm going to bring your father to you. And from what she said in that video, I understand that she really wavered on that because there was just no way to find out. She went on Ancestry.com. She hired an investigator, put her her DNA on 23andMe, and uh, just they couldn't find anything. And then recently, she got an email from Ancestry.com. There's some kind of match, and it's a cousin. And she said she was afraid to even look it up. She didn't look for days. And then finally, she wrote him and didn't hear back. And she thought, oh, you know, she wrote this person. She didn't know if it was maternal or paternal because there wasn't a way to find out. And she was thinking, I wonder if I should punch that name that I wrote into 23andMe. I wonder if their DNA is on there. And all of a sudden, bloop, just a few seconds later, a few minutes later, boom, she got an email from 23andMe. There's a match. And it was that guy. She looked into it, it was a paternal match. And then, she's, and then she gets an email that the guy would like to talk with her. She said, man, I really wanted to know, but I, you know, I didn't want to look too eager, you know, so you just wait a few days and then finally casually, you know, yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of when I'd talk to Kathy. Try to be real casual. And so... This guy reaches out to her and he said, I don't, I don't know who in my family. I've got some uncles that I'm going to talk to. And she didn't hear anything back for several weeks and just wondered and kind of gave up. And all of a sudden, she gets a message from the guy and she said, I've talked to my uncle. He thinks he's your father and he would like to talk to you. And she lost it. She started bawling. And the guy said, what, what are you crying for? I thought this is what you wanted. Guys don't get it, okay? <laughs> Ladies, you just got to help us out. He said, she said, I, he said, I, I don't get it. I thought this is what you wanted. She said, this isn't the narrative that I imagined 
What she meant by that is she figured if she ever were able to find this guy, what he would say to her is, hey, listen, I don't have time for you. That was a, that was a mistake. Uh, you know, hey, you know, you know who I am now. Let's leave it at that. There's no room in my life for you. But instead, the guy wanted to talk to her. Long story short, they're now texting every day. They call each other. He's a Paul. He said, I never knew you were there. I'm so sorry for what you've been through. And she even, I thought it was, and she, she pointed out, he has beautiful eyebrows. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. But she's been reconciled to her father. And I just thought, you know, how appropriate that this happens or it comes out publicly. I don't, it was in the recent, you know, the recent past that this happened. But she comes out with this story the week before Father's Day. And I'm just weird enough. I go to Heartland, okay? I'm just weird enough. I think it's prophetic. I think that God is telling us he is going to settle father issues. There is a father hunger in our hearts that he wants to settle once and for all. And I'm telling you, I felt it in this room this morning. The brooding father. Some of you, you didn't know your dad. Some of you, you knew your dad and you wish you didn't because your dad didn't have it, have it to give. And the, the tragedy of that is a little child often, they don't have the capacity to think, wow, Dad isn't giving love because he doesn't have it to give. He can't give what he doesn't have. He can't give what he never received. He's broken. It's not about me. A little child just thinks, I must not be lovable. And it shaped your identity. And God wants to touch that by the spirit of adoption and heal you. Some of you, you had a relationship with your dad and you've worked through a lot of things, but there's still more the Lord wants to do. Some of you are like me. You didn't realize some things that were broken until God pointed them out. But I'm telling you, God wants to settle this because the kingdom of heaven is a family. It's a father who had a son and he said, I want many begotten's. I want many sons and daughters. And you are the answer to that dream. And if you don't have a dad, maybe your dad just can't function in that role for whatever circumstance. I'm telling you, you have a claim on the spirit of adoption that if you begin to reach into that, God will begin to heal that area of your life. One of my, I've got a lot of favorites. My favorite passage is the one I'm preaching on that morning. This morning, this is my, one of my favorite passages. At the end of David's life, it's kind of like his obituary. David begins to talk. At the end of his life, he's getting ready to pass out of time into eternity. He's had a life well lived. And he makes the statement, David, the one whom God chose as a king. There's a guy who knew his identity and celebrated it. But he says this. He says, David, the son of Jesse, the one whom God chose as a king. Now, if you know David's story, Jesse didn't claim David, but David reached back and claimed Jesse. There was some, something going on because when the prophet, the most important man alive in that hour of human history tells Jesse, I'm coming to your house, gather your boys. The one son he left out of the invitation and left him working on the backside of the field with the, the livestock was David. Many believe, and I agree, I, I, I think David was the result. I believe when David said, in sin I was conceived, I don't think he was just talking in general 
fallenness that we're all conceived in sin. I believe it was an act of sin. It was an immoral relationship that his dad did. And I believe that manifestation of both David and Solomon's life was because they didn't deal with that generational pattern that had come down. And so when the prophet shows up, the last thing you want walking around the room is a reminder of your adulterous relationship. So he left him out in the backfield. And Solomon picked up on it. That was the one that God chose. David, there was something about David. He didn't get bitter. He just took that as a, as a platform. I'm going to make a claim on God that my brothers don't have because dad has a good relationship with them. And rather than being bitter, rather than allowing his dad to bring him down at the end of his life, David had reached such heights in the things of God. And then David reaches back and said, David, the one who God chose as a king. Oh, yeah, let me remind you son of Jesse, and he pulls his dad up. I think it's such a beautiful thing. David was redeeming the generations. He was changing the family identity. David, son of Jesse, the one who God chose as a king. God wants to settle those issues in our life. The, the promise of the Father, the third person of the Trinity's primary objective in your life is to give to you the Father's blessing, to cause you to cry out, Abba, Father, and to settle your daddy issues. Let's go ahead and stand. I want to just pray over you this morning. I'm not going to keep you. I want us all just to close our eyes, stand before the Lord. Ever since we've come in here this morning, there's been the, the, just that fathering presence, that fathering brooding over this place. The story of the prodigal son by Jesus in Luke 15 was to be a picture of who the father really was because the, those who were supposed to represent the father, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, we're rejecting the sinner. So Jesus told this story. He said, there's a father who had, many, had two sons. And one said, Dad, I wish you were dead, but because you're not, if you were, then I could get my inheritance now. But because you're not, could you just sell off some of the livestock and the land so I could get it now? And the brokenhearted father gave the son his inheritance and he went to a far off country and squandered it. When he was hungry, he thought of the pigs. When he was starving, he then thought of the father. And he returned home and the dad was on the porch day after day looking just for a glimpse that one day my son will come home. And that day he saw a stooped over, frail, dirty figure, but he, he recognized the gait of his son. And scripture says he ran down and intercepted him. He wanted to get there before anybody else did because in Hebrew culture, if they got to him before, they would have pelted him with, with vegetables and fruit and called him names and ran him out of town. But if the father accepted him, everybody else had to. And so the father ran down there and clothed him and he told the servants, listen, I'm not having him step a foot further until he has a robe and a ring and I need, we're going to clothe him. So they, everybody has to accept him because I have. That is the heart of the father towards us. So, Father, I just thank you. I thank you for the spirit of adoption. Holy Spirit, I ask that you just come right now. 
Hallelujah. Father, you see our hearts. Lord, you see the Father wounds, the Father voids. Holy Spirit, come. Just seep into every crevice of our heart, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we rebuke those lies from the enemy. We rebuke those lies. Sandra shared that one of the lies that she believed was that she had to know her dad and his ethnicity before she could step into her identity, before she could step into her calling. She went through some inner healing and, and the Lord exposed that lie and she realized, I'm not hindered. If I never meet my dad, I'm not hindered from moving into my destiny. The enemy loves to come in on those father wounds and begin to build lie upon lie and just box us in. So Lord, we come against those lies in Jesus' name. And Father, I ask that you would begin to do a deep work Lord, like David, when you took him on the backside of the desert and in his alone time with the livestock, he was put there so he would be unseen, but he was seen by you. Lord, do that in each of us. Hallelujah. And I want to pray for one more thing this morning. Father, we pray for the black community in the U.S. And Lord, that diabolical plan of the enemy to decimate the family structure. Lord, I'm asking God that you would go to war. Lord, let your zeal clothe you. And Father, I'm asking that you would step in. And Lord, we're asking that real answers would begin to rise out of the church and Washington, D.C., out of the state houses. Lord, that wisdom would instruct us. And Lord, we're asking not just for restoration of the family system, but recompense in the spirit. Lord, we're asking that they would become a, a, an example. Lord, that they would become leaders who would teach others, Lord, about the restoration of the family, the restoration of cities and foundations. Lord, we're asking that you would raise up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers out of the black church, Lord, that you would give them vengeance and the very area of attack would become the area of their strength. Lord, it would become a stronghold. In Jesus' name. I really want to encourage you. Let's begin to pray that for the black community that God would just invade that. And I'm going to be looking into some, some avenues in which we could partner in that. But we want to just pray for the strengthening of the family. That's the real answer. And, uh, and revival, just like man, revival in, in the United States. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.